Now remain standing for our Gospel lesson, which is also today's sermon text from John 6. Give your ear to God's Gospel. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by the Father. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless the reading and preaching of Your Word. And give us all ears to hear the good news and what You are requiring of us so that we can believe it and do it. We ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I encourage you to open your Bibles to John 6 and look at the text as we spend time in it and walk through most of the verses of this passage. Here at the end of John 6, we find the parable of the sower playing itself out in real life in the ministry of Jesus. Of course, the parable of the sower is not told, is not recorded in the book of John. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in many ways, as I've been studying, reading through the book of John and preaching through it, it's occurred to me that it's sort of one long commentary on the parable of the sowers because John is very interested in distinguishing, distinguishing between true faith and false faith. True believers and false believers. Of course, in the parable of the sower, there is a sower or a planter who goes out to sow his seed. As he sows, some of the seed falls along the path. And the path, you remember, is hard ground because it's been trampled underfoot by people walking. The seed that lands on the hard path gets devoured by the birds of the air. It never takes root, never grows, produces any fruit. Of course, not all the seed lands on the hard path. Some of it falls on rock. And as it grows up in this rocky dirt, it withers away because Jesus says it has no moisture. Some of the seed falls among the thorns. And the thorns grow up alongside it. And they choke it out. They choke its life out. But some of the seed falls on good soil, Jesus says. On rich soil. The fourth kind of soil. And that seed grows tall. And it yields a big crop. It produces much fruit. We might do better to call this parable the parable of the four soils. 
Because the lesson we learn is that the soil determines the outcome of the seed. And the point of the parable is that the soil of a person's heart determines what kind of faith he will have. Either a faith that endures or a faith that does not. Perhaps never even really gets started. We see all four of these soils in the Gospels and in the book of John in particular. And my guess is that in a gathering this size, all four soils, all four four soil types are represented here. The hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorn-infested soil, and the good soil. The hard hearts, the dry, rocky hearts, the cluttered, thorn-infested hearts, and the good hearts, the honest and good hearts that have been made alive by God's Spirit. And here's how Jesus explained the parable of the sower. He says in Luke 8.11, the seed is the Word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard and the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the Word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. They exercise faith for a while, Jesus says. But in the time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, as they grow, they are choked by the cares of and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast, and in an honest and good heart, bear fruit with patience. The question that this parable leaves you with The question that the last 12 verses of John 6 leaves you with is what kind of soil are you made of? What kind of heart do you have? Is your heart like the soft, good, rich soil? Or is it hard like the trodden path? Are you exercising a faith that produces fruit? A faith that has roots? Or is your faith fruitless? Because it's Rootless? Does your faith flow from an honest and good heart, as Jesus calls it? Or is your faith being choked out by the cares, the pleasures, the riches of life? As we have seen so far in the book of John, and as we'll see more in the book of John, most of the people who followed Jesus exercised a faith that proved to be without root and therefore without fruit and therefore temporary, short-lived. Even one of the twelve chosen disciples, Jesus says, I I hand-picked these twelve. I chose them. Even one of the twelve chosen, elected disciples will prove to be a false disciple in the end. His faith was choked out. It dried up. Verses 60 to 71 of John 6 contain the starkest contrast that we've seen so far in John's gospel between false faith and true faith, between false disciples and true disciples. You'll notice that in these chapters, particularly in chapter 2 and now in chapter 6, He does call them disciples. And He does say that they believe, that they have faith. But just like the parable of the sower, not all faith is of the same quality. The contrast is clearest when we look at how each group responds to the words of Jesus in this passage, in this story. In verses 60-63, to we see how false disciples respond to the teaching of Christ. It offends them. 
They murmur and complain about it. They find all kinds of problems with it. They say this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? They fail to see the words of Christ as spirit and as life. On the other hand, how do true disciples respond to the words of Jesus? Well, look down at verse 68. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the confession, the belief of a true disciple. Now we know Peter was not a perfect disciple. We know that his faith at times faltered, and it's going to falter in a major way later in the Gospel when Jesus goes to the cross. But these are the words, the confession, the heart of someone who knows Jesus. Genuine believers are attracted to the words of Christ. Why? Because they agree with Jesus that those words, His words, are spirit and life and that they lead to eternal life, as Jesus says. So let's walk through the passage and make some observations and applications along the way. Verse 60, we learn that to the natural man, we talked about what the natural man is. The natural man is, is a false believer, someone who does not know God, maybe a temporary disciple. To, to the natural man, or somebody who doesn't have any faith at all, to him the words of Christ seem hard. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, John Calvin was insightful on this verse. And I want us to learn directly from him for the next minute or two. The false disciples of Jesus say this is a hard saying. Calvin says, on the contrary, the hardness was in their hearts and not in the saying. Calvin goes on to say that unbelievers and false believers have a tendency to gather stones out of God's Word and then dash themselves against those stones. The Word that ought to soften their hearts becomes an occasion for them to harden their hearts further against God. Calvin continues, whoever submits humbly to Christ's teaching will find nothing hard or rough in it. To unbelievers, however, who obstinately oppose it, it will be a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces, as the, as the prophet puts it in Jeremiah 23, 29. But, and this is the part I want you to listen to because this is the part where Calvin addresses all of us, not just those who approve to be false believers. But, Calvin says, the same hardness is inborn in all of us. And we could add that the same hardness is still lingering in all of us. And if we judge Christ's teaching from our feelings, His words will be just so many paradoxes. End quote. The sayings of Christ are not hard to understand. They're not hard to make heads or tails out of. But they are hard to believe. And they are hard to obey. Particularly for the man who lacks God's Spirit. Christ's words are simple. And they're simple to obey. But they're not easy to obey. They're not complicated. They're simple. But only the supernatural work of God working in your heart will enable you to believe and then do the simple, straightforward words of Jesus Christ. To the extent that your heart is proud and worldly, unbelieving, self-indulgent, your response to Christian truth will be, these are hard sayings. Who can understand them? Who can hear them? Who can do them? To the extent that your heart is clouded, cluttered by pride, unbelief, cares and riches and pleasures of, the, of this world, you will be confused and offended by the teachings of Scripture. See, there is a direct link 
between a good heart, as Jesus calls it, and a good understanding of Scripture. If your heart is not right with God, you will not have a right understanding of God's Word. We're often told, we're often exhorted, rightly, that our walk with Christ will only be as good as our knowledge of Christ's Word. Of course, that's true. If you're not in the Word, you won't grow as a Christian. But it also works the other way. Your understanding of the words of Christ will only be as good as your walk with Christ. You can't know Jesus without knowing His Word, and you can't know His Word without knowing Him. They grow together. Or they wither together. You can't separate the two. They forever go together. There's no such thing as a true biblical scholar who does not know Jesus. You can't be a scholar of the Word, inscripturated, without knowing the Word made flesh. So there are a lot of so-called biblical scholars who can tell you a lot about the historical contexts and literary structures of Scripture. They may be experts in the Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek. They may even write books on the Bible. But they don't know what any of it means. They can't understand it if they don't believe it. They can't hear it because they don't believe it. And so to them, no matter how long they've been studying it, it's all paradoxes and riddles, contradictions, puzzles. Now, I need to qualify what I'm saying a little bit. I don't deny that there are some passages in Scripture that are harder to understand than others. There are some puzzles in the Bible. Even the Apostle Peter recognized that some of Paul's writings were difficult to understand. So the Bible no doubt has some conundrums. Things that we're still figuring out. Maybe things we won't figure out this side of heaven or the new creation. However, the true believer hears the Gospel of Christ in the pages of Scripture. He believes that Christ gave His flesh and blood on the cross for the salvation of everyone who believes. He sees that. He understands that. He knows that. And he believes it. To the true disciple, the straightforward teachings of the Bible are spirit and life. They are the words of eternal life. To the unbeliever, they stink. And they are words of death. When you read the Bible, or when you hear it read, and you hear it proclaimed, Do you hear the words of eternal life? Is God's Word spirit and life to you? And if so, could it be more the case than it is? The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, the difference between somebody who knows Jesus and does not know Jesus, is that a Christian hears the voice of Jesus. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian hears the voice of Jesus. I'm not talking about an audible voice in the sky. And I'm not primarily talking about an internal prompting of your soul. The, The Spirit's work in your spirit leading you and guiding you. I'm mainly talking about the words of Scripture. The words that God inspired, that the Spirit inspired. When a Christian hears the Bible, he hears the voice of Jesus. He hears the voice of His shepherd. Only Christ's sheep can hear the voice of Jesus in the words of Scripture. And therefore, only a sheep can rightly understand it, rightly interpret it and explain it 
Remember that, children, when you go to college and you hear unbelievers talk about the Scripture. John 10.27, Jesus says plainly, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. So there's a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep that enables the sheep to hear and follow and know the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. So if you're a sheep, you'll hear His voice. And you'll hear it particularly when you hear the Bible read. When you read the Bible. When you hear biblical sermons based on the Bible. And then you will follow Jesus by obeying His commandments. But what should you do when you find it hard to accept Scripture's teaching? If you find it hard to understand or even accept some of the Bible's teachings, that doesn't mean you're not a sheep. That doesn't mean you're a non-Christian. You know you're a sheep, but you also know that, that while you belong to Jesus, you find some things that He says, some things in His Word, difficult. You know Him and you hear Him, but it doesn't take away all of the difficulties. You can't figure out why God allows certain things to happen in Scripture. Or we could expand that throughout history, even outside of Scripture, because we know God is in control of everything. If you, want to be, if you want to avoid being offended by God's Word or God's ways, then pray for and labor for Humility. You'll notice I didn't say pray for and labor for answers. That, that's fine if you want to pray for that after. But first, pray for and labor for humility because the answers may not come. Humbly remember your present ignorance, your finiteness, your limitations. Remember that you don't know more than you do know. Now, of course, you know the essentials and you can know them firmly without having to doubt them. You know the basics. You know the Gospel. And God has given us very much to know about Him and about His creation, about ourselves, about Jesus. But we still don't know more than we know and you need to accept that this will be the case for your entire life. No matter how smart you get. No matter how many answers you find. And you need to believe humbly that one day, on the other side of death, and on the other side of the new creation, the resurrection of the dead, you will know much more than you know now, but that you have to wait until then. You can't get it prematurely. When you find any of Christ's teachings difficult to obey, humbly remember that He will never require of you anything that you cannot do. What, what is impossible to you, or at least seems impossible to you, is possible for God. Whatever He commands you to do, He will enable you by His grace, to perform it. In verse 63, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are Spirit, and they are life. Now, what does Jesus mean here? And why does He say it here? To understand what Jesus means and to understand why He says this, we need to remind ourselves why the false disciples were offended. Why they were murmuring. The hard saying that they were complaining about had to do with the idea of eating the flesh of Jesus. To get a better understanding of what they had a hard time believing and what they saw as offensive, let's go back up to verse 53. And read to verse 58. Verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is food indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on Me will live because of Me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. This, what I just read, is what offended them. This is what they failed to believe and rightly understand because their hearts were hard. In verse 63, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of His words. You'll notice the word flesh in there. The flesh profits nothing. He's qualifying what He said, not because what He said is in any way wrong, or misleading, but because the way they interpreted it was completely wrong. In their hardness of hearts, they interpreted Jesus' words literally. They thought He was speaking somehow literally about His flesh. About eating His flesh. It's hard to know exactly how they interpreted what exactly they thought it meant, but it's clear that they interpreted it in a strictly physical, carnal, fleshly way. So Jesus corrects their carnal thinking in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. In other words, what I'm talking about here is a spiritual reality, a holy spiritual reality. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now when Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. He means that it is the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual life from the dead. Spiritual life to a man's soul. The Holy Spirit imparts spiritual life and then the Holy Spirit is the one who sustains that spiritual life to the end of your physical life. It is true that the spiritual benefits imparted by the Holy Spirit are only possible because Jesus gave His flesh on the cross. But the spiritual benefits that Jesus accomplished for you in His flesh on the cross are received by you in your heart by faith through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in you. And that's what That's what Jesus wanted us to be thinking about in His words that I just read that we we read a few weeks ago and that I preached on about the eating and the drinking. When Jesus says the flesh profits nothing, He doesn't mean that His flesh going to the cross is meaningless. He's not denying what He just said. He's not denying the the gospel of the cross. He means that neither his flesh nor anyone else's flesh, for that matter, can do any good to the soul on its own apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life is not received through the mouth, but through the heart, primarily. Through faith. Your soul is not a material thing, therefore it cannot be nourished by material food. When Jesus says the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, He means that His words applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit are the means of spiritual life. When He says they are spirit, a synonymous way of saying that is they are spiritual. They are of the Spirit. They are from the Holy Spirit to your spirit. Those are the things that are meant here. So he means his words applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit are the means of spiritual life. The words of mere man can have the power to arouse thoughts and to stir the conscience. No doubt. But the words of mere men are not living and active, are they? 
The words of Christ alone have the power to prick your heart, to convict of sin, and to impart life to your soul. The spiritual principle contained in verse 63 is vital to a correct understanding of biblical religion, of the Christian faith. This verse warns us against attaching too much emphasis, or we could even say significance, on the outward and visible parts of the faith as important and essential, we could say, as those outward and visible parts of our faith are. You see, the heart and soul of the Christian faith is not baptism and the Lord's Supper. The heart and soul of the Christian faith is not even, in one sense, not even our corporate worship that happens every Lord's Day between 10.30 and noon. See, the sacraments and Lord's Day worship are vital. Vital means of grace. They're essential. And if we were to cast them aside, we would do so to our own spiritual peril and shame. But the heart of the Christian faith is what the Spirit of God does in the hearts of His disciples. Do you know why public worship and the sacraments cannot be the heart of the Christian faith? Because every week, congregations of people with no Christian faith, with no living faith in their hearts, gather together for worship and the sacraments. The heart of the Christian faith is Christian faith in the hearts of Christ's sheep. The heart of the faith is the life that God implants in your inward being. In the inward parts of His people. From that Spirit-given faith and life will flow the public worship of God's people every Sunday. From the Spirit-given life and faith that wells up in the hearts of believers will flow Trinitarian baptisms and the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. But apart from the life-giving Holy Spirit working inside of believers, transforming, transforming them from the inside out, the visible and external parts of the Christian faith Profit nothing. The purposes of God will prosper in the church and in the world as a consequence of the Holy Spirit imparting spiritual life into the hearts of God's people. Then we can receive God's benefits that He truly extends to us in baptism and in the Lord's Supper because we have faith, because we have God's Spirit. We have the mechanism for receiving God's grace through His means that He has set up. And that mechanism is Spirit-born faith. Even the death of Christ on the cross will ultimately profit you nothing unless the life-giving Spirit gives you living faith in Jesus. Christ gave His flesh for the life of the world. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can connect you to that life. That eternal life. That spiritual life. That resurrection life. It's objectively there whether you are connected to it or not. The cross of Christ is true. It happened. But it's not subjectively yours until you connect to it by faith and by the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, put your faith in Jesus. That's the exhortation of John's Gospel from beginning to end. Put your trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. 
Believe in me, Jesus says. And if your faith is weak, ask for more faith. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are biblical ways of praying. Remember the promise of Jesus in Luke 11.13. If you then being evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In verse 64, we're reminded that Christ has a perfect knowledge of the hearts of men. But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray Him. We might be tempted to underestimate the importance of this verse. But I think few truths are better for our soul, better for our faith, than the truth that our Savior knows all things. In particular, He knows everything in everyone's heart. And that includes you. We can think about the implications of that. He doesn't just know what's in your heart right now. He knows what's going to be there tomorrow and the next day and on your final day. This throws great light on the stunning patience of Jesus, doesn't it? Especially during His earthly ministry. Think about it. All His life on the earth, from the beginning it says, He knew the sorrow and pain and humiliation that lay ahead. He knew that some who professed to be His close friends, close associates, would scatter. They would tuck tail and run. They would deny Him or betray Him. And yet, He endured it all. As Hebrews 12.2 says, He endured it for the joy that was set before Him. Verse 63 also reminds us that while we oftentimes can fool our fellow Christians, we cannot fool Jesus. He sees all. He knows all. He knows you better than you know yourself. And He will expose all on the last day. Whatever you are as a believer, however weak your Christian faith is, be real and true and sincere. Not hypocritical. It does no good to pretend to be something you're not. Or to be someone you're not. But this verse is also comforting, isn't it? Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He's, a, he's ever aware of your past sins and your future sins. And yet... He's patient with you. He still loves you. He does not despise you for it. You might despise yourself and others may despise you, but He does not. He is still glad that He died for you and for all of those shameful sins. And He died for you so that you could be cleansed of all your shameful and disgusting sins. He knows you, and yet He loves you. Verse 66 is a sad conclusion to the sermon of Christ that occupies most of John 6. It says, from that time, many of His disciples went back and they walked with Jesus no more. Their faith was temporary. And this is evidence of the hardness and the corruption of man's heart. Even when the preacher is the Son of God in the flesh, many hear with spiritually deaf ears. Most of the disciples in John 6 turn out to be like the rocky ground. 
They are rocky ground hearers. Luke 8.13 says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. You see, these disciples were, they had received God, Jesus' words with joy. They were following Him with joy, especially when He was feeding them. But these have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. All is not gold that glitters. And all blossoms do not come to fruit. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not everyone who was born in the nation of Israel was truly a member of God's people. And what this means for us is that not all who are baptized into the church of Jesus Christ are true members of Christ. Many baptized, many baptized Christians will have feelings, desires, convictions, guilt, sorrow for sin, resolutions to do better, hopes, joys, and yet not have saving faith, lasting faith, enduring faith, persevering faith, faith in Christ. Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 speaks of some baptized Christians who, the author says, had been enlightened, who had tasted of the heavenly gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's all scriptural language but who eventually fell away from the faith and ended up in hell. Now we, have, we know, of course, that none of those whom God has chosen to persevere to the end will fall away. But it's a reality that some of those that God brings into His covenant, and they, they share in the Holy Spirit in some sense. They're enlightened in some sense. They, they taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come will fall away. In verse 67, Jesus asked the twelve disciples, what about you? Do you want to go away too? As these have? And then in verses 68 and 69, Peter gives his noble confession. His profession of allegiance to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? Interesting way of putting it. It's not really a positive reason to stay. It's where else can we go? And, but then he says, you have the words of eternal life. And also, we have come to believe. We have come to have faith and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a confession just like this that led Jesus to say in Matthew 16, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This kind of faith, this kind of confession, this kind of conviction comes from God alone. But we mustn't overlook the question that Peter begins his confession with. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else is there? Who else is there? Where do we go if we leave you? What other teacher makes more sense than you do? Where should we go to find a guide to heaven, to the kingdom of God? Who compares with you? What will we gain by abandoning you is there a scribe or a pharisee or a rabbi or a sadducee a priest who can give us the words of eternal life as you have peter's question is one you can ask yourself when you're tempted to give up on the christian faith when it's not making as much sense as it used to it's easy for those who hate christianity to, to poke holes in 
what we believe or, or really to poke holes in our conduct and to show where what we do doesn't match up with what we believe or to just object to certain doctrines that are contrary to the way we think, the way the natural man thinks, to what makes sense. Or to find fault with Christian institutions and practices. And oftentimes, it's hard to give answers to these objections, to these criticisms. Sometimes, this may cause us to wonder whether what we believe makes sense. Or, or maybe it'll cause us to ask why Christ doesn't make the answers easier to find or easier to understand or just more available. But the question you should always come back to, maybe start with and end with, to whom shall I go? If I give up on Christ, where do I go? Is there a better interpretation of reality than the Bible? Can I better myself by turning my back on Christ and joining up with the world? Is that a step forward in any discernible way? No, it's not. And so we're encouraged when we ask that question to hold fast to Christ and to persevere in faith to the end even when we don't have all of the answers even when our understanding is incomplete, even when it's very apparent to us that we don't know more than we know. Verses 70 and 71 remind us that religion is not always a privilege. Or, or to say it better, religious privileges do not always ensure final salvation. For Judas, the religious privileges that he had made his condemnation even worse. Was there ever a man who enjoyed greater privileges, more opportunities than Judas Iscariot? Judas was a chosen disciple. Hand chosen by Jesus Himself. A constant companion of Christ a witness to all His miracles, a hearer of all of His teachings and His preaching. He heard more than we get to hear by far. Jesus even commissioned Judas to preach, to go out and heal in His name. And He did. It would be impossible to imagine a more favorable position for a person's soul than Judas's. And yet, tragically, Judas made shipwreck of his faith. And he fell hopelessly into hell where he will be forever. The example of Judas is a sober reminder that the possession of religious privileges is not enough to save your soul. It's not enough to be raised in a Christian family. It's not enough to come to church every Sunday or to be a lifelong member of the church even. What every person needs to be saved is the grace of God working in his heart. The grace of God which is given by the Spirit of God. With saving grace, we'll be able to serve God in the most difficult circumstances. Like Joseph in Egypt. Like Obadiah in Ahab's court. Like Daniel in Babylon. Like the Christians in Nero's court. Without saving grace, though, even if we live in the full light of Christ's glory, we will, like Judas, fall away when we are tested. Or we will finally be consumed by the cares and riches and pleasures 
of this life. But this is not a cause for anxiety. It's a cause for sober-mindedness, but not anxiousness. The response to this is not to stress over whether you have or have not been given the grace of God. Whether you are or are not one of the elect. The Bible nowhere encourages that sort of questioning of yourself. There, there are ways to make your calling and election sure by looking to Jesus, by examining your heart and your fruit. When you are in obedience, then your assurance is automatically higher. But we're never supposed to try to peer into the decree of God about us. That's not the right way of looking at it. If you want to know that you are saved, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The good news is that God's grace is available for the asking. Now, what I'm about to say here is not a denial that God, God's grace must come to us first, that He must awaken us apart from anything we do. Okay, But what we need to acknowledge is that there is a grand mystery about how that all works out in real life and in space and time when we consider the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And so I say because I think the Bible says it, that grace is there for the asking. Jesus promised that when you ask for grace, it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. When you, when you seek God's grace, you will find it. When you knock on the door of God's grace, it will be opened to you. That's in the same place where Jesus says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him for it? So what we need to see here is that the Lord is more willing to give grace than man is to seek after it. So seek the grace of God. Seek the life-giving Spirit of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for not being a silent God. But for being a God who speaks to us and who speaks much to us with many words, many insights, many truths. And we thank You for being a God who speaks plainly to us that we don't have to decode riddles to understand who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus and what it means for us to be Christians, to be disciples, to be true disciples of Jesus. Help us this week to grow in grace, to grow in godliness, to grow deeper roots in our hearts roots that are grounded in the Scriptures. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.